With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome, welcome to episode 2.1. That's right, 2.1 of the Let's Get Weird podcast. This was a podcast that Paul Banks and I uh, originally recorded last week and was all ready to go, but I, the one person at hammerandrails.com that actually has a degree in media production, didn't record the sound right, and it sounded awful. So we have called in Dr. Juan, our usual podcast producer, to do the recording, and it's going to be Paul and I this week getting weird when it comes to sports. And episode two will be Shoeless Joe Jackson, as promised. So now that that entry is out of the way, let's introduce Paul Banks. How you doing, Paul? I'm doing great, and I'm really excited for version 2.0 of, of the Shoeless Joe Jackson. It's been a long time coming, but this is a subject that's very uh, near and dear to my heart as someone who grew up right smack dab in the middle of Sox country and as someone who is uh, very well read on this topic, to say the least. <laughs> yes, indeed. And uh, as kind of what we got off on a bit of a sidetrack the last time, Shoeless Joe himself has such a great name. And it was at a time when there were all kinds of fantastic names around baseball. You had Shoeless Joe Jackson, and uh, you had Charles Swede Risberg, George Buck Weaver, uh, Oscar Happy Felsch, Arnold Chick Gandel, Claude Lefty Williams. And, of course, uh, many of those were nicknames, but one name that was involved prominently in the whole thing was not a nickname. Perhaps the best name of any public figure we've ever had out there, Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Yes, he was the man who ended up issuing the ruling that got all eight members of the Chicago White Sox banned from baseball for life. And that is why we do not have the man with the third highest batting average in Major League history, that would be Shoeless Joe Jackson, not in the Hall of Fame. Because to this day, the eight members of the team that, whether some that threw the World Series, intentionally, for those who don't know what throwing the World Series would mean, intentionally lost, or just knew about it and didn't say anything, they all got grouped together. And Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis with extremely draconian, with a very harsh in his ruling on it. So so let's start at the beginning here, and uh, let, let's see where it all starts for Shoeless Joe. Uh, where, where did he get the name Shoeless Joe from? Well, that all just came from... The fact that he was in a minor league game, he had new shoes on that didn't fit, and he just played in the field without them. It just was simply the fact that he didn't like these shoes, so he played in the field, and some fan of a rival team that was heckling him called him, you know, you you shoeless bastard or whatever the 1910s, 19-aughts equivalent of that was. And And the name just stuck, and he actually didn't really like that name a whole lot. 
because it stuck with him throughout the rest of his career. And he felt it kind of was an allusion to his very, very humble beginnings in the textile mill in South Carolina. This is 15 to 20 years after the end of Reconstruction, after the Civil War. So it was the South was a very different place. Well, actually, it's the same in some other ways today, but in other ways, it was, it was very different. Boy, you danced around that one. <laughs> right. That may be outside the scope of this podcast, but actually, no, the Civil War does actually figure into when we get into the 1919 White Sox themselves. So that's a little teaser there towards later in the podcast. He was a guy that grew up very poor, very uneducated. A very strange element of the Joe Jackson story is sports writers would often refer to his lack of education and his ignorance in their game coverage. Like even in like a game recap or or something, they would allude to that, which was very um, strange to say the least, because it said a lot about how much things have changed since then. And in that time, sports writers, you know, the educated, the erudite were more looked up to by the players and, and the players had less rights. And, you know, nowadays it's more like, hey, you can get an exclusive with this guy. As a sports writer, you have to bend over backwards to get access. So things have definitely done a 180 since then. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I know you mentioned his humble upbringing and uh, whatnot. I, I don't even think humble is a proper word for it. Just just in looking at his Wikipedia page here, uh, his father was a sharecropper and uh, the age of six or seven. So about, you know, I could, I could do this with my son now in eight months or so. He went to work in a textile mill <laughs> as a lint head, and he worked 12-hour shifts. You know, just forget going to school or anything. When you're working a 12-hour shift in a mill at age six, that is um, that is definitely some uh, some kind of beginning. Yeah, it's, you know, it's never too early to get him started, but, you know, he'd wake him up in a few hours and get him going. That was kind of, baseball was his only way out. And the first couple times that he came up in the major leagues, he actually flamed out with the Philadelphia Athletics. Connie Mack, the great base, one of the great baseball geniuses of all time, at least in scouting talent, really believed in him. But he struggled in adjusting from in life from the rural small town south to big city Philadelphia. So twice he, he went up to the parent club and he didn't make it. And he would go back down to the minor leagues, and he would he would dominate. He actually played for the New Orleans Pelicans, which was a minor league baseball team at the time, and not the NBA franchise that we all know to to grow and love these days. Etwan Moore, shout out! Yeah, there you go. Props to East Chicago. From then, he got traded to the Cleveland Naps, which was a team named after Napoleon LaJoy, the star player. So you can imagine what kind of team chemistry they had where one guy on the team, they're named after him. And they would become, they, you know, it's, a, it's the same franchise as the Cleveland Spiders, as the Cleveland Indians. And the Cleveland Spiders at one time uh, actually still have the record likely to be unbroken for the worst uh, major league season of all time. When I think they went, oh, let's see what they did. It was in 1899. Worse than the 62 Mets. By far worse than the 62 Mets. <laughs> when they won 20 games and they had to play most of their games on the road um, because 
the uh, owner was running it as a sideshow, and after their first 16 home games, when the total attendance was barely over 3,100 people, teams refused to go to their park because they would get barely anything for ticket revenue and not cover their travel and hotel expenses. So things could be worse if you're, no matter what team you're a fan of these days, just remember that. But anyway, back to the Cleveland Naps and uh, Shoeless Joe. So during this time, he was also moonlighting as a vaudeville actor. <laughs> and this is where people should realize that the character played by Ray Liotta briefly in Field of Dreams and the character played by D.B. Sweeney in Eight Men Out. I mean, Shoeless Joe is this guy who's been mythologized in American culture, but the real guy was plenty interesting. He didn't really need to fictionalize him. He would go and he would hold out in spring training to pursue his vaudeville career. And <laughs> so far as there's even a part um, in his life where he ran off with his vaudeville actress, it disappeared to Atlanta for a brief period of time and his wife almost divorced him over it and we would dive into that a lot more but we don't really know where he went with with this actress and what he did because it's such a mysterious part of it, of his life i i just finished reading a book fall from grace by tim hornbaker he's a biographer he's done one on charles comiskey he's done on the white Sox. i've also read this book burying the black socks by gene carney and i've read the the book statement out a couple times in addition to seeing the movie like 20 times but they don't really cover in too much detail because uh there's so much mystery to it we were talking about him being a vaudeville actor i mean the closest thing that we've got to that was when willie mays hayes after the indians won the division went and did uh black thunder white lightning with jesse the body ventura yeah that's a classic straight to dvd <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew there was I knew there was some major league reference coming at, at some point tonight. <laughs> but uh, let, let's here. There's also another aspect uh, that happened to him, kind of between seasons, and when he had to go work in a shipyard because of the war too in World War One. Yeah, that's definitely one of the most interesting parts of his story. Um, to avoid the draft in World War One, he took a job painting warships he was then in the midst this is after he had been traded from cleveland to the white Sox. this was when he was in his prime and he's just dominating a shipbuilding league so he's basically the ringers on that simpsons episode in the in the plant softball on the plant softball team but yeah can you imagine that where one of the greatest hitters of all time just shows up and you know your your basic shipbuilding league and it was all because he didn't want to get drafted and well go fight in europe and that's and that's what kind of led to that is an overlooked aspect of why he did eventually turn on comiskey and turn on his on his white Sox teammates because when he did this he was be he was getting basically tarred and feathered in the media and branded unpatriotic and one of the main guys with that bullhorn was charles comiskey himself so his own owner was branding him as this yellow belly, you know, this guy who did not do his patriotic duty and was scared. Obviously, that's not going to sit very well with him. And that was a main, that was a very primary cause as to why, along with Comiskey's notorious frugality, let's put it that way to be nice. But no, Comiskey... As as depicted in the movie, when they he would the, the players were promised a, a bonus for winning the American League pennant. All they got was a case of flat champagne for that. 
And just recently, this came to light about two or three months ago, Charles Comiskey passed up the letters came out and were up for auction. Charles Comiskey passed on the opportunity to purchase Babe Ruth for a sum that would be equivalent to 450000 in today's dollars. Yeah, that's ridiculous. But as as you uh, as you said, he was pretty much a cheap bastard. Uh. <laughs> that's a yeah, cheap bastard frugality. You know, we can we can take this any way, any direction we want to go with it. Same concept. And wasn't there a rumor that when they tore down Comiskey Park back in the uh, late eighties, early nineties, didn't they like find some paperwork or money or something in like a forgotten closet somewhere? That that's new to me. I've, I've never heard this one. Oh, I, I I thought I thought I remember something like when they were tearing it down, they they found something in like an elevator shaft or what whatever. Eh, maybe maybe I'm just imagining that. But anyway, so Are you sure this wasn't an episode of Drunk History or something. I don't know. I don't know, man. <laughs> but anyway, obviously his frugality and everything led to. The thing that Shoeless Joe's most remembered for in the Black Sox in the 1919 World Series. So let, let's dive into that a little bit. Yeah, for those that aren't up on this, we, we didn't really get into the World Series itself too much. But the Sox were huge favorites. They were basically the 27 Yankees before the 27 Yankees. In 1917, they had won the World Series. They just completely curb stomped the New York Giants in that one. In 1918, they kind of fell apart, but in 1919, they were just crushing the competition. This fix was one that was was pretty obvious. It was kind of it was it was a very poorly thought out scandal. You've got some gamblers that came to the group led by well, actually, I should back up a little bit. The 1919 White Sox were a very divided team. So all the cliches about team chemistry and team unity and how that leads to success. And if you have a divided team, you will lose that, that do not apply here. You had one group of the very wholesome choir boy educated types. And then you had the all night partiers, ruffians, the, um, the rabble rousers, the degenerates. And which then brings us to the fact that the movie featured Charlie Sheen. And I think you can guess the player that Charlie Sheen depicted, which side he was on. Oh, I, I know that, uh, you know, you have the hard partiers and everything else, but then you also had uh, their opponent being the Cincinnati Reds. Not really that great of a team by then and uh, finished no higher than third since 1900. And they were they actually did pretty well uh, in winning the National League at the time, it looks like. Yeah, I mean, the Red Legs, as they were known then, were very confident in themselves that they could have won either way, even if you, you didn't have... You had, like, the, the greatest the pitcher with the greatest control in the entire major leagues and lefty Williams. He was just basically issuing free passes left and right. Uh, Eddie Seacott, uh, played by the immortal David Strathairn. Great. <laughs> he was totally off his game and, and he was just a very, he, he won 29 games that year. So that was totally off. You had, you had the, the gambling world really got involved here that even, uh, Arnold Rothstein known as the big bankroll, and a legendary figure who inspired Meyer Wolfsheim in The Great Gatsby, actually. He was he was behind it. And and once once he made sure 
that this was fixed. It, it, it was going to stay fixed, even though this, it was a scandal that was just kind of coming apart at the seams. It was, it was, it was bad. And the players, they looked bad on the field and it was obvious. And then it was also a, a very poorly run financial scheme at the same, at the same time. I, and it was also one of the random rare world series. One of only four that was a best of nine series as opposed to a best of seven yeah that was bizarre it would have been over a lot faster if it had been best of seven and it led to the so-called curse of the black Sox, just like you had the curse of the bambino uh the billy goat curse they lost this world series in 1919 they did not go back until 1959 and they did not win it again until 2005. You have the fix going in, and Cincinnati ends up winning the World Series in eight games, which is really strange to say. What kind of it was Shoeless Joel's role, role in this, and uh, kind of why was he implicated? Did he know about the fix? Did he participate, or what? That's probably the reason why he has such a amazing legacy. I mean, he's more than just the guy who Babe Ruth said he modeled his swing off of. He's more than just a man who was rivaling Ty Cobb for the greatest hitter of the era. He was a guy that we don't know what side he was really on because he hit, he had a really high batting average. He drove in a lot of runs. He hit the series only home run. He made no errors. He played dominant in that World Series. So he took the money and then just played to win anyway. So how can you really, that really doesn't make him more noble because now he double cross somebody and then double cross the people that he was double crossing with. Did he just take the money and then play to win and then not tell anyone the fact that he knew that's why he got in trouble. We do. We just, then there are some who who say that, Oh, well he drove and runs in garbage time and he was not hitting any hit poorly in situations that actually mattered. If you look at the statistical splits, then there's that camp. What we do know from the biographies that I've read is his wife, Katie was essentially one of his main guidance counselors. If you will, he really kind of came to her at a lot of the big decisions in his life. And um, side note, she was 15 when they got married. I guess we kind of skipped over that one, didn't we? <laughs> well, I mean, when you're working in a mill at age six, shoot, surprised he wasn't married by age nine. Yeah, that's true. Fifteen when you're in um, anti-bill post-reconstruction South Carolina is probably 15 would be like the new 35, I guess. But I digress. He didn't come to her with that. And as you can imagine, she kind of reacted as a typical wife would when you find out your husband has decided to throw away his entire livelihood by getting involved with uh, the criminal underworld. And from there, he actually gave testimony in 1920 in which he proclaimed innocence. Actually, the testimony that he gave in 1920 in Chicago contradicted the testimony he gave in 1924 in Milwaukee in a civil case in which he was suing Charles Comiskey for back pay. What he said in court at that time, the the jury was, was totally starstruck and they just were like, yay, a star athlete. So they, they ruled in his favor. But the judge found that he committed perjury and overruled the ruling of the jury and sentenced him to prison, but he was able to avoid prison time. So basically, he was blatantly lying in a court of law at one of the, at either in 1920 or 1924. And I think that is why 
we're still talking about him to this day is, is that there is such an enigma to him. And like you said, is you know he has one of the highest batting averages of anybody who was not in the Hall of Fame. And he, he finished it with 1,772 hits, and that's with his career being cut short because he's banned from baseball eventually and who who knows where his final numbers would have been and whatnot and like you said babe ruth kind of models his swing after him and everything and it's it's such a strange career to be cut short kind of in the prime right and you know you look at if you go to a Sox game today and you see all the homages that are paid to the white Sox of yesteryear and the retired numbers and the all-time greats and here you have who some would say is a top five best player in the history of the game. Some would might say top three, certainly in the dead ball era in the, in the pre Ruthian era, you put him with Ty Cobb as as the best of that generation. His number is not retired at Sox park and he's not in Cooperstown and he's more known for his failings off the field than for what he did on the field. And then, you know, off the field, after he's done with baseball, he goes home, he opens a dry cleaner and eventually owns a liquor store and has the famous quote, um, when uh, Ty Cobb and Grantland Rice came into the liquor store and Jackson showed no sign of knowing who Ty Cobb was. And Ty's finally like, don't you know me, Joe? And Jackson's like, sure, I know you, but I wasn't sure you wanted to know me. A lot of the other players don't. And, you know, that's that's kind of heartbreaking when you think about it. I mean, here's a guy that was at the top of his game and he's basically not only kicked out of baseball, but he's pretty much blackballed from people that knew him well, too. Yeah, once um, once Kennesaw Mountain Landis issued that ruling, everybody distanced themselves. The way that he, the judge, issued that ruling led, gave baseball more credibility because people knew it was more on the up and up. And then Babe Ruth came along, and then he gave the game more popular appeal by hitting home runs. Shoeless Joe Jackson just was never the same after that. I mean, that's that's such a great story. I I, I love that anecdote, but it doesn't... And he never had any children with his wife, and, and so his legacy kind of uh, passed away with him, except his uh, great-great-nephew, uh, also named Joe Jackson, is a minor league baseball player now, and he uh, was the first... His name is Joseph Ray Jackson, and he made his professional debut... In 2013, in the uh, with with uh, who the heck were the Frisco Rough Riders with? Uh, but but anyway, he he made it as high as Double A in 2015, and uh, w- was the first uh, with in the Rangers organization, and he was the first relative of Shoeless Joe to get back involved in pre- in uh, in professional baseball too. That's a fantastic story. That'd be awesome if the Rangers called him up in September. Just had him. Uh, I don't think he is currently with them. This this was a couple of years ago. He batted 386 in college for uh, another great named uh, college, the Citadel, one of the now uh, forlorn four, if you will, since Northwestern led the group of uh, schools that have been eligible for every NCAA men's basketball tournament but have never made it. Uh, so his great great nephew played for the Citadel down in South Carolina, and then um, looks like he got as high as the as Double A two years ago at age 24. And it says his last minor league stats are with the Kansas City T Bones yes, Association. I, I <laughs> saw them. Team. I saw the Kansas. I was at the Chicago Dogs 
home opener. No, the Chicago Dogs franchise opener on Memorial Day weekend, and the Kansas City T-Bones were the opponent. Uh, isn't that uh, the new ballpark out by the Rosemont Horizon or whatever they're calling it now? You can see the Big Ten office um, in center field. Oh yeah, there we go. Gotta and, be the gotta be the new home of the Big Ten baseball tournament. Yes, Rosemont. That um, it's uh, actually the Rosemont Horizon, the Allstate Arena is is kind of far away from there, but it is funny to have a, a team named Chicago that is in Rosemont, and it is the the unaffiliated baseball explosion. Uh, but yes, um, I believe that's that's the same league as the Gary Shore Railcats and the Joliet Slammers. <laughs> the Juliet Jackhammers. Oh, jeez. Yeah, some of these teams. Whew. Yeah, they, I mean, yeah. They, I mean, we talked. We talked about some of these great names of players, but some of the names of these, like the Ohio Valley Redcoats or the Slippery Rock Sliders, the Traverse City Beach Bums. That's a good one too. Oh yes, uh, I, I was always a fan of the Canopolis Intimidators. Uh, <laughs> the home of, I believe that's in a White Sox affiliate, if I recall, or at least that, one time that they was were, a like, White Sox uh, A ball affiliate. Yes, and I think they're in the league, in the same league as the Augusta Green Jackets, which you know that's that's a good one too. That's solid, but um. But Shoeless Joe did actually play for a team that was actually all the Black Sox. After they were barred, they would go on barnstorming tours and they would play for semi-pro teams. And they would just basically play for any league or any team that they could get away with and kind of escape the claws of MLB. And I think it was Hapfels who played for a team called the Ice Creams. Wow, that's impressive. It's knowledge like this that landed me on the History Channels, how the states got their shapes in 2012, where I debated a White Sox, and I didn't debate. I engaged in a trivia contest against a White Sox fan dressed in a Batman costume, and I was just wearing a Cubs t-shirt on a Wrigley, on a Wrigleyville rooftop, educating the children, you know, with our baseball knowledge. So uh, that sounds like it uh, ends the ends the story of Shoeless Joe, and uh, it, it's kind of sad. And I'm wondering if we will ever see. I mean, I I kind of feel bad that it's like, yeah, it'd be great if he did go into the Hall of Fame, but I, I have it in the view of Ron Santo and how he went in after he died, and it's the oh great, yeah, put him in after he can't enjoy being put in. Right, and you know it is sad, but. He- you don't want to cry for him too much because as I got towards the end chapters of the book, he would still go to the ballpark and there were in South Carolina, they would have a, a, a Joe Jackson night and he would sign autographs and he would be honored and sure only 3000 people would show up, but yeah. Okay. So he had dry cleaning businesses and a liquor store, but he was very successful in his post baseball career. I mean, he, People think of him as as uneducated and and he was illiterate and everything, but he still was able to make a nice living for him and his wife. And he was obviously not the sharpest knife in the drawer when it came to some things, but he was still pretty clever and pretty intelligent um, in his craft. Like he came up with this weird thing that he would hold a hand over his eye and use the other eye to stare at a candle. And that somehow improved his hand to eye coordination. And that improved his batting average. I don't really know how that worked. Wow. I guess you can't argue with results, right? Right. I mean, that's go for it, man. That's that's really strange, but I mean, if it works, it works. You know, the positive that you can take away is he good. He is a good Horatio Alger story of how he came from nothing and rose to the top before being undone by well, 
But then again, he's also not really a sympathetic figure because he's undone by his own uh, poor decision making. That's unfortunately what happens. And, you know, it's it's it makes for quite a story in the end. Right. I mean, America loves a great success story. But then, as F. Scott Fitzgerald said, show me a hero and I'll write you a tragedy. And we have hero and tragedy in the same. So that, ladies and gentlemen, is Shoeless Joe Jackson, and that is the second episode of Let's Get Weird Sports. Uh, we've actually got a couple of ideas that we were kicking around uh, in the Lost Podcast now for the third episode, and it seemed like the one that we could probably really do a good dive into is sticking with the White Sox, Disco Demolition Night. It's a crazy, crazy uh, one out there. Uh, we're big fans of the dollop, uh, Paul and I, and they did a wonderful podcast on Disco Demolition Night. It was actually one of their live ones in Chicago. And it's kind of a um, kind of an interesting uh, little personal connection there. I actually know the winning pitcher from Disco Demolition Night. He is a uh, guy by the name of Pat Underwood. He is from Kokomo, Indiana, was the number two overall draft picks in the mid-70s. And my first job out of college, I worked with his wife uh, making TV commercials. And his nephew is one of my oldest and dearest friends. So uh, he was actually involved in Disco Demolition Night, was the winning pitcher in the first game of the doubleheader before the second one was uh, <laughs> was forfeited by the White Sox because a bunch of crazy fans ran on the field and tore it up. Yeah, you can't ask for a better material than this. So thank you, Chicago White Sox, for being the gift that keeps on giving. When you have a game forfeited due to a riot and a field is actually blown to bits from having records blown up and... I mean, it's it's crazy. You had people climbing the walls, getting ladders, climbing in. I mean, this was a team that was not drawing well, that was going nowhere, that there was such apathy for. It's a mid, it's mid season. It's just kind of a, a blah time. People were just fighting with each other to get into this game so they could go express their hatred for disco, which then actually turned into just a reason for people to get drunk loud rowdy and crazy you mean people would be participating in uh drinking in the late 70s uh while watching baseball the nerve i know what who who would have thought that so that, that's just a little teaser on what will probably be let's get weird number three the recording of that will be to be determined and uh, we'll get into that. And the Hammer and Rails regular podcast will hopefully get going again soon as base or as football season is currently 16 days away as of this recording. But for Paul, yes, uh, Paul will be at the opener against uh, the Evanston Wildcats, Northwestern. Going to be hanging out with Kirk Hurt Street up in the booth. Oh, yeah. Maybe, um, maybe I'll get to say hello to Maria Taylor as well. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Yeah, wasn't that wasn't she the reason um, coach Craig T. Nelson was was trending on Twitter for all the wrong reasons last fall? I I this is news to me, actually. So I have no idea. <laughs> well, when Craig T. Nelson is trending, don't you automatically assume coach is being rebooted? But it wasn't. I'll tell you what, you and uh, the listeners, you can just go Google that and you can make up your own minds on that. I was like, oh, great. What did Mr. Incredible do? <laughs> <laughs> 
But yeah, right. we've, got, we've got the we've got the ESPN eight team coming to West Lafayette for the opener. All right, that's gonna be that's gonna be a great game. I will be in the stands uh, with the family and everything, and only sixteen days away, fifteen or fourteen, depending on when you're listening to this podcast. But we're excited for that, and we're excited for this new podcast adventure. So we thank you for listening. For Paul and for Juan, who has been doing a great job of recording through all of our issues here, this is T-Mill saying good night and always, always get weird.